They say what you put into something is what you take out of it. And it's true. To me, nothing is more interesting than what a critic brings into a movie. Do they like the director or cast? Are they plugged into the buzz? What do they think of the trailers? The point of this podcast, then, is to give listeners a chance to hear from a top film critic, both before and after they've seen a film, and to see how people's expectations shape their opinion of a movie itself. My name is Matthew Modigal, and welcome to After the Credits. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of After the Credits, the review podcast here at One Perfect Shot. It is a uh, it's a pretty exciting episode because we're going to be talking about a movie that a lot of people have been writing about for a very, very long time, and that is Solo, a Star Wars story. And here to talk about the Star Wars universe as a whole, and Solo in particular, is this week's guest, Oliver Whitney. Oliver, can you tell our listeners uh, the site that you write for, the type of writing you do, and why you're Kathleen Kennedy's best friend? <laughs> sure thing. Um, I write for ScreenCrush.com. I'm a senior editor there. And yeah, I write about movies and TV and um, lots of Star Wars stuff as well. And Kathleen Kennedy uh, doesn't like me too much, probably, if she remembers. Um, because about, I guess it was about a year and a half ago, I asked her why she had only hired um, male directors and hadn't really given any people, uh, people of color or women a chance to direct a Star Wars film. And she didn't really have... Uh, the best response to that so if yeah, she remembers me and if she's listening hey kathleen kennedy and i hope you uh, <laughs> change your hiring decisions so how did that feel talk talk a little bit about that because that was i mean that was a star wars thing where suddenly you know your name was on every website that has even you know a passing interest in star wars talking about this conversation this exchange that y'all had had like wh- how surreal was that or, or how did you feel that the the ensuing conversation went well, I honestly, um, it, it was for uh, it was a press conference for Rogue One. So I was actually at um, Lucasfilm's like headquarters for Rogue One, and I didn't go in intending to ask anything necessarily incendiary or you know scandalous. I was just kind of watching the press conference, and um, the thing that kind of bugged me was that she was talking a lot about um, bringing more. Um, actresses into the Star Wars universe, particularly with, um, you know, Felicity um, in Rogue One and, uh, you know, Daisy in Force Awakens and such. And they were sort of celebrating bringing more women to the forefront, which I I love and is great. But um, they weren't really addressing the fact that they continued to hire men, particularly white men, to direct all the movies without really giving anyone else a chance. Um, so I was like, this is a good opportunity to actually just kind of ask her why this has happened and why she hasn't really considered to change it yet. And so I just kind of raised my hand and asked. And it, literally, as soon as I did, there was a chill across the room. And everyone just kind of froze because she clearly didn't want to be asked that question. And um, she responded in a very roundabout way that sort of didn't answer it and kind of denied the fact that she hadn't really considered other people for the role. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a scary thing to ask, um, you know, the, the person that's in charge of this entire franchise, um, a question that a lot of people hadn't really been asking her and hadn't really been challenging her about. So I'm glad that I did it, but, um, it seems like it didn't really make a difference at this point. Yeah. The, the idea of it not making a difference, I think is, is an interesting thing to talk about because, you know, we're now in, I don't know, year five or six or whatever it is of the, the Disney Star Wars universe. And I know there's a lot of arguments on both sides by fans and filmmakers alike as to whether or not, you know, Solo represents um, a step in the right direction. Are they going to be going about mining their property in the right way? Is it a regression? You know, we're excited to see that there are some people of color that are involved behind the scenes. Bradford Young's cinematography in this film has been one of the highlights so far in what people have said. But, you know, how do you feel about the first five or six years of Disney Star Wars? I mean, I am excited that they have brought more diverse people, you know, in front of the camera, particularly with, you know, in Force Awakens, even just looking at the background actors, like you see a lot more people of color within the Star Wars universe now than I think we did in the prequels and the first trilogy. So you do see that there is progress being made and they are trying to, you know, tell more stories about women, um, especially with um, with The Last Jedi. There's some really interesting stuff there. Um, so you can see it, but... It's just, I feel like they kind of use that um, for a pat on the back and don't really want to try much harder. And I mean, one interesting thing to bring it back to Solo is the conversation happening around Lando, that he is apparently pansexual, um, 
but supposedly only outside of the movie is he pansexual and not supposedly in the film, which we haven't seen it yet, so we'll find out. Yeah, it's it's that actually has kicked off a pretty interesting conversation that's going around right now about the the um, LGBTQ subtext of all of these. You know, people are like, oh yeah, well we don't actually say it in the movie, but it's totally understood that this character is whatever sexuality they may have. You know, it's it's interesting to see. Um, and this isn't necessarily an indictment of just solo. I mean, a lot of films do this, but it's interesting to, to see the way that we're starting to wise up, I guess, to how a lot of these bigger blockbusters are trying to have diversity without necessarily having diversity, the way the language that they use to talk about it. You know, there was that really great piece um, that I, I can't remember who wrote it, but it was the one about the like the current age of gay cinema and whether or not we're you know, actually making any progress that came out this past week. Oh, right. Um, yeah, that was a vulture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Thank you. The vulture piece. You know, I I think I think Lando as a character is going to be a really interesting talking point after this movie because of how much he's going to mean to so many different audiences. Um, but I'm, part of the question, too, is do you think that Disney as a company, do you think that, that the filmmakers and the cast and crew aspire with a movie like Solo to, to really dive into any of this? Is there a conscious effort a conscious decision to try and make a movie a star wars movie that is for a newly diverse audiences or for people that may not have gotten on board to the franchise before or are they still are they still in this negotiating area where they're trying to cater to the fans um and i guess as a way of kind of answering that i would ask you to say what did you think of the last jedi because the last jedi is such a contentious film in terms of old fandom and new fandom like wrap all that together how did how does that fit for you Right. Well, I mean, I'll say that I love The Last Jedi. Like, absolutely loved it. I might have loved it more than The Force Awakens as well. I mean, I, I, I feel like I saw um, Last Jedi twice, probably within um, the first two weeks of it opening, and was just blown away by it even more the second time. And I also I love A Force Awakens, but um, but it's also just so derivative in a lot of ways, you know, of um, of the original films and. The Last Jedi was so surprising to me, and there's so many twists and so many turns that are grounded in such emotional storytelling that it hit me in a way that that um, you know the previous um, films hadn't. So I I think that there is an ability to there's a desire for them to cater to fans, but with The Last Jedi, it surprised me that they're willing to sort of take leaps and tell different kinds of stories and and not sort of give into all of the fandom theories that we've been, you know, sorting through for years, you know, particularly with the reveal of, of Jin's parents, um, you know, if they stick to that reveal will be um, another point of conversation. But I think the way that they handled it um, really, really surprised me for the best. Let's talk about the prequel element of this film um, and what it means to have a, Han, a young Han Solo movie in general. You know, I've, I've talked on social media for my part I'm sort of an a apologetic Star Wars cynic at this point just because my personal bias is that I grew up reading all of these extended universe books um, at a time where there was a big gap in Star Wars movies. You know, I fell in love with a lot of these characters because of what they existed, you know, how they were represented in the books. It means that I have a hard time with the Star Wars films. I try and own that, and I try and make sure that I call out um, people that don't like them for good reasons. But I am one of those people that that has trouble like getting rid of all the books and stuff that I read. So I've I've, re- I've read some reviews and I've seen some criticisms of, of the movie that says this is basically just sort of like those early Hondo, Han and Lando books that were written in like the eighties and nineties. And there's this does seem to be catering to the old idea of the Star Wars universe a little bit more. You know, so talk talk about that, like the the idea of going back and diving into some of this early history. And we've been threatened with, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi prequels and Han Solo prequels and Lando prequels. Like every major character in this universe will eventually probably get their origin story. Is that exciting or is that reductive? I mean, honestly, I'm not really interested in origin stories in general, especially of characters that are already so iconic and characters that you know, have already sort of burned an impression into our, you know, larger pop culture consciousness. I mean, when you think of Han Solo, you think of Harrison Ford, and I'm not really interested in in another person's take on it. So when I first heard about the Han Solo prequel, I wasn't really that excited. Um, And I think the things that got me a little bit more interested in it were the were the casting of the rest of the actors. So you know, Fanny Newton's casting and Amelia Clark and Donald Glover, and I think 
the the rest of the characters and bringing new people into that universe is what interests me and uh the possibility that the prequels could deviate from you know the original trilogy in in interesting and, and new ways with do with new directors and new writers is something that is intriguing to me but just sort of rehashing characters that we already know and trying to draw a connection between a new past and then the the ones that we know them as I just can't really see that ever really working out. So I'm nervous about it going into this because I, I can't imagine it being the Han Solo that I you know have in my mind. And I'm also worried about it not being that Han Solo at the same time. So how do you, as both somebody that, that is you know gaining an appreciation of the films as well as, as a critic, like how do you reconcile a performance like that in general? When an actor is taking over an, an iconic character, when somebody is playing a younger version or even an older version of someone that we all know, know and love, I mean, Maybe the Bond movies are a good example of that. Whenever they switch their actors out, mm-hmm. like how do you how do you weigh that? Like how how much does everything that comes before um, play into how you evaluate the character? Are you or do you just go into the movie blank and say like, all right, set aside Harrison Ford and everything he accomplished. Like this is a whole new thing for me. I mean, I'd like to go into the movie blank, but I don't know if I could. Like as much as I tried, mm-hmm. I think that the you know impression of who Han Solo is, is going to be there in my mind. So I guess, you know, considering that, I think I would appreciate a performance that is more willing to take risks and show interesting newer sides of a character than just mimic something we already know. Um, I mean, as much as we'd like to see more Harrison Ford as Han Solo, I don't know if another actor can recreate that. So I think if Alden Ehrenreich is just sort of mimicking it, which as like early rumors and reports of of this, you know, production have showed us that that might be the case. Um, I, th- I think that's something that should be avoided because then we're just going to get sort of a rehashing of everything we know. But um, yeah, yeah. So what do you think of, of Alden Ehrenreich as an actor? I mean, we've only seen him in a couple of different things. He's, mm-hmm. he's done a, a, some really interesting work, but I think most people probably only know him um, from the Coen Brothers film, Hail Caesar, you know, what kind of an impression do you have? Do you think that he has, even setting aside some of the blind items about having to hire an acting coach and, you know, bringing mm-hmm. in and retooling his performance and things of that nature, do you think he has the chops to be not Han Solo, not Harrison Ford, but like a dynamic space pirate? I mean, I think he's a good actor in what I've seen him in. And yeah, he is most known for Hail Caesar, of course, which he's a complete delight in. And I, I absolutely love him in that movie. And he's also really good in Blue Jasmine and and he's good in um, in, in Stoker. And I saw um, Yellow Birds, which was the uh, his upcoming war movie with um, Jennifer Aniston's in it. And I saw that at Sundance two years ago, which wasn't really crazy about the movie itself, but he gives a really interesting grounded performance and I think he's a really interesting actor to watch and there's a lot of potential there with his with his dramatic abilities but I I don't know when you play someone in the Star Wars universe and they're given sort of this this huge role to fill I'm not really even sure how much that matters if he's just more concerned with trying to please fans and recreate this character or if he's given enough risk to do something different I mean I think it all kind of comes down to the directors, which is the whole other conversation around this movie. Well, since you opened that door, let's talk about it. <laughs> um, yeah, so we had we had Phil Lord and we had Chris Miller, and they were they came into the film um, with writing actually, I would say, a really a big wave of enthusiasm after the Lego Movie and some of the work that they'd done in comedy. People were, you know, projecting this really lighthearted and funny and dashing. Uh, Han Solo movie on them and we all know what happened or we all know at least what they're willing to talk about what happened um, we know that Disney decided to go a different way the two of them were let go and Ron Howard steady Eddie that he is came in and finished the production there are estimates that say that Solo is about 70% is what I've seen 70% Ron mm-hmm. Howard's movie 30% uh, Lord and Miller's movie so you know we haven't necessarily seen that degree of turnover uh, at this level of Hollywood. This is probably the highest, the, the biggest budget, the most writing on it that a movie has ever sort of punted on filmmakers and, and gone a different route halfway through. A lot of fans are going to be worried about that. Should they be? I mean, I'm a little worried about it. So yeah, I think so. Because it's uh, <laughs> just to imagine that a movie was, you know, it wasn't just like they were in the pre-production phase and they and they shot a couple scenes. Like, yeah, from what we've heard, it's about 70% of the movie was already shot. And I think once 
what I've heard since Ron Howard came on, he just reshot the same exact scenes that um, Lord and Miller originally wrote. So it's a weird case of like, whose is this? And like, whose signature is actually on this film? And I'm really curious to see if there's going to be an interesting divide, especially in the tone, you know, with Lord and Miller's more comedic tone. And if Ron Howard's taking a more, um, just like a more risk-free approach to it, are we going to be able to see that transition? Or are they able to meld that in the editing process? And it's just such a, a weird thing that, you know, we don't know what happened exactly. And who knows if we're ever going to find out how much of the actual final result was whose film. But yeah, we've never really seen this happen to this degree. So if anything, and I think following Rogue One, which, you know, had sort of similar issues, but more so that was after the film was almost nearly um, finished shooting, is that the prequels are clearly not, you know, on safe ground for, for Lucasfilm. And they, they keep running into these issues where they're trying to take risks in bringing on different filmmakers and somehow it all goes wrong and they try to patch it up at the last minute. And I just, that's not the way to, to make, you know, a guaranteed solid movie. And I think that after this, hopefully they can learn a lesson and, and I don't know what direction they would go in, but this is clearly not the right direction. Yeah. And I like that you bring up the Rogue One stuff because, you know, famously Tony Gilroy came in and has been uh, surprisingly candid in his evaluation of where the movie was at before he came in and reshot some stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and I, I think it one of the things that you can't help but think about as, as a writer is you're looking at the Star Wars universe and they're, since both are owned by Mar uh, Disney now, you look at the Marvel universe and how they've been able to sort of gradually over time loosen the reins a little bit of their house style, let filmmakers like Taika Waititi come in and do a little bit more of their thing and not necessarily lose the stuff that is inherent to any Marvel movie. So not to, to sort of get you in deeper water with Kathleen Kennedy, but like, how do you, how do you fix that? If you're Lucasfilm, like, how do you, how do you, is it just a matter of you need to make more movies that are sort of, you know, less auteur driven and more studio driven until you get your, your, the parameters of what your house style should look like in place? Or do you just, start bringing in talents and swinging for the fences right away. Like, you know, you have four films and two of them have had um, some degree of production troubles. This does feels like something that they, they need to work out a little bit if they're going to continue to make a Star Wars movie every year. Yeah, it definitely does. I mean, I don't know if it's a case of just keep doing more and then down the line take more risks, but I think there's just such a precious hold on the Star Wars franchise in a way that's different from Marvel in that... I don't know, I guess they don't want to take as, as many risks. and But the, the place to take those risks is with the prequels. And the, ta the place that you know Marvel has taken risks is with the solo movies. So like Thor 3 and, um, and even rebooting Spider-Man, which is more Sony, but still just considering the different sort of um, flavors that that movie brought to the franchise. I mean, I wish that they would just sort of swing for the fences, I guess, and then learn from that rather than try to cobble things together that aren't really a complete piece. You know, when I, the thing about Rogue One is I really like it. Um, but there are also things that are so forgettable about it that you can sort of tell that they were trying to take a risk and it didn't really work. So I think it's just maybe making those decisions in advance and like finding someone that they can actually trust in to take the franchise in a different direction um, with the prequels rather than letting someone sort of have some freedom and then pulling back and trying to fix it last minute. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I hear you. Well, let's let's talk to you about the um, the reception, I guess, of the film, because one of the, you know, the perks of being part of New York uh, film Twitter, for lack of a better phrase, is that you gain access to a lot of really good stuff, but you don't necessarily get the L.A. premieres, which means that all of our friends in California have seen this movie and have been, you know, have seen it probably for two or three weeks now. So, you know, people in the industry that have been talking about this movie, you've read this stuff, like what, what kind of general consensus or vibe are you getting from people you trust about Solo? Such mixed opinions. I mean, all over the map. I mean, there, there was actually a screening here last week in New York um, that I didn't make it to. So I'm going to the second screening next week. But, um, you know, people that I've trust, I've heard that people have liked it with reservations. I've heard people that absolutely hate it and have, you know, completely negative things to say. So I kind of really don't know what to expect. I think I was expecting a more clear consensus of either like, this is bad, or this is actually not too bad, and it's okay. But it seems to be so up in the air that I, I really have no idea what I'm, um, what I'm gonna react to when I go into it. But it's almost more exciting that way. Because I mean, 
if it's all over the map, then then who knows? Yeah. How do you feel about, you know, do you feel better going into a movie where there is sort of a general consensus where people are like, this is mostly good or mostly bad? Or is it, is it sort of exciting as a critic to go into a film where every, like everybody has a different opinion and you don't really feel yourself being pulled in one direction or the other? I mean, I guess it's a bit of both. Either way, if, if someone's, you know, if, if people are really like praising something or hating it, I get excited to to see which side I'm going to fall on. Um, but yeah, if there's not really a clear consensus, then it's then it's just sort of leaves it up in the air, like how I don't really know how I'm going to react. So that way it sort of leaves it open. Well, let's kind of give, um, before we give it our final prediction, you know, one thing I like to do on the podcast is I like to sort of ask my guests to do a best case and worst case scenario based on what they think they know and pulling in all the, the trailers and marketing material they've seen. So let's start with sort of like the worst case scenario for you to walk out of solo saying, I did not like that. It didn't work at all. Lucasfilm is in trouble, blah, blah, blah. What kind of things will the movie have done? Like what kind of mistakes do you think it could make that would mean you wouldn't like it? Oh gosh. Okay. Well, I think my biggest worry is really Alden's performance. And most of that is based on the trailers and then the TV spots that I've seen where he seems to be copying Harrison Ford and has this really weird, funky accent that just sort of makes me feel a little cringy and I'm not, I'm not totally sure about it. So I think worst case is I walk out of this movie and it like almost ruins my impression of Han Solo, which I doubt it's going to be that bad because you know I can always just rewatch the trilogy um, and then have Harrison Ford in mind. But I guess worst case is if it's, um, if it's trying to force something that doesn't feel natural. And, and also, I'm really, really hoping that there's going to be enough of the supporting cast. Like, I want to see lots of Fandy Newton. I want to see lots of, of Donald Glover. Mm-hmm. And if there isn't enough of them, I think I'm going to walk out pretty bummed. Since you brought up the trailers, is, does it seem weird at all that he's not actually in them that much? I mean, you'd think that yeah, he, he's only like they do a couple of lines. They have like a couple of like nice little comedic throwaways. But for a movie about one character, he's surprisingly absent from the teasers and trailers we've seen. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I don't know if they're if they're just hiding stuff in the editing that they don't want to show us yet because of all of the behind the scenes drama or or maybe there's something special to look forward to. I don't know. Hmm. All right, lots of writing on you, Alden. Get it right. Yeah. Um, let's talk about kind of best case scenario then. You walk out of the film, you loved it, you think that this might even be the best Star Wars movie to date. You know, what, um, what does it have to do to earn that opinion? What, what does it do if it gets it right? I think it just needs to be a fun adventure. Like, I would love to just like have a good time watching it and then walk out and just feel like it's adding something fresh to the, fa- to the franchise that I haven't seen before. Um, specifically, like, that's sort of how I felt about Rogue One, which has sort of faded in my mind over time. But when I walked out of that, I was so excited by the dark direction that it took the film and that it, it ended the, the way that it did. So if Han Solo can do something like that and and show that there's the, the prequels are actually worthwhile, like if it leaves me with an impression that there's a reason that I should be interested in seeing origin stories and prequels, then I think there's something successful there. And are we pro or anti um, seeing any kind of Jedi or Force stuff in this movie? Do we want a Star Wars universe without Force stuff, or do we want Force stuff? I mean, without it would be pretty cool. I mean, if they can if they can make a good movie without it and and keep my interest, then I'm all for it. Nice. All right. Well, Oliver, then it is time to kind of put your money where your mouth is and give this your your score going in. So, on a scale of one to five, what do you think? you're going to end up feeling about Star Wars uh, or Han Solo, Star Wars story, Star Wars, Han Solo story, story, whatever, whatever the complicated name is. <laughs> whatever it's called. Um, I'm going to be safe and I'm going to say a three. Three seems three seems pretty much like good middle of the road, not too bad, not too good, just you know, a, a generically competent summer blockbuster. Is that kind of where a three is for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's optimism there, but I'm not too excited, but I also have a little bit of faith. Okay. I'm going to put, I'm going to, I'm going to, in a rare show of optimism, um, and this might be the, the second time I just did this with Rob Hunter, where I went um, enthusiastic about Deadpool too. So I don't know what I'm doing anymore, <laughs> but um, I'm going to say a 3.5, which is sort of entirely based on the fact that there are some critics that I follow that saw the film a few weeks ago, people like Cater Bland and Mike Ryan and Angie Han, um, who I trust to not like this kind of stuff. And then be like, okay, they're gonna they're going to have more mixed opinions, and they did, but it was more generally positive, and that to me 
um, that that ate away a lot at my cynicism for the film. The people that whose opinions I trusted that liked it more than I thought they would sort of have a halo effect on me. So I'm going to say mm-hmm. 3.5. If they enjoyed it, I probably will too. Yeah, they're good people to to trust as well. That's uh, that's a good point. Yeah, that for a lot of times that's just what it boils down to. Like if the right if the right if I get the right film critic to give it the right or the right film critics to give it the right score ahead of time, I'm willing to punt on like two years of entrenched opinions. You know, <laughs> like I'll be like, I don't think this is gonna look good. Be like, well, Matt Singer liked it, so I mean, I, okay, I guess it is actually gonna be all right. <laughs> right. Yeah, but he didn't. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, he doesn't really like anything, so I shouldn't use him as an example. But. <laughs> All right. Well, you are going to go see this in just a few days, and I will be seeing it um, a few days after that. So, Oliver, let's reconvene in about a week's time, and we'll see how, if we were right about Solo, A Star Wars Story. All right. I can't wait. Well, hey, everybody, we are back and we're ready to talk some serious Star Wars with Solo. Uh, I'm going to put a spoiler warning here and tell you that we're going to discuss the ins and outs of this movie and that things will be spoiled. I don't know how well that applies to a prequel because it's not so much where you're going, but where you've been. So um, I guess I'll do a long term spoiler and say that Han Solo dies in The Force Awakens. So, you know, deal with that if you need it. But yes, in terms of Solo, we are going to talk about some of the nitty-gritty character reveals. Um, And there are some interesting origin elements in here, too. So walk away if you haven't seen it. If you're sticking around, then you're ready for what's next. So Oliver, let's start kind of with big picture stuff. What did you think about Solo? What was your, like, immediate reaction coming out of the movie theater? Uh, Okay, so my immediate reaction was I didn't like it, but I thought it was fine. And then maybe a couple hours later, after I really sat with the movie, I grew to dislike it more and more and more. I like this. I like this because I agree with you. Um, yeah. and I, I Weirdly, I sort of feel like we're a little in the minority among the film critic circle. I feel like there's a lot of people that are just like, it's, you know, whatever, it's bad, but aren't critical of it. But there's there seems to be a very vocal contingency of folks that are saying, you know, this is actually a really, really great Star Wars movie and we're not appreciative of it. Um, maybe Maybe that's a place to start. So, like, for the people that you've talked to that said, like, this is awesome – where was the disconnect? Well, what are they seeing that you didn't? I feel like I've talked to more people that are in the middle and then also people that are aligning with me as far as not liking it. I guess I haven't had a full conversation with someone who loved it okay. and thought it was awesome. So I was almost hoping that you were that person. No, so I'm still, <laughs> no, 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 I'm still not that person. I'm sorry about that. All right, well, then, okay, so we're both, we're both going to be a little cranky about Solo, so turn this off already <laughs> if you wanted to come and listen to Love. But... Um, okay, so what is it about the movie? And I'm really interested in that period of time where you kind of sat and reflected on it. What was it about that period of time? Like, what did you find yourself going back to and going like, I just can't forgive that? I think it was just the more I sat with it, the less I liked about it and the less things I could excuse. I mean, I think my initial reaction, and and this is what I actually said to my friend who I saw it with, is I turned to him right away and I said, this just doesn't feel like a Star Wars movie to me. It feels like a knockoff Star Wars movie, like fanfic in a sense. It just didn't feel, um, I didn't have the same feeling watching this that I had watching really any other Star Wars movie. And it just essentially just felt so unnecessary. And I think that's the thing a lot of people who don't like this movie have been saying is how inessential it is to just the rest of the Star Wars franchise. And I think the more I sat with it, I it was harder for me to actually pick out things that were memorable, that were lasting, things that made this movie actually feel worthwhile to me. I mean, there there are a couple things I did like, um, but over time, it just those things got fewer and fewer. Yeah, I you know the thing that comes to mind for me a little bit um, is a weird television comparison. Like this should have been the monster of the week episode. This should have been sort of like the fun and breezy and memorable standalone that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the rest of the story because we know where he's going and they've made a conscious effort to sort of give you, there are attempts at this to sort of create this own little universe about Han Solo and what he went through before he joined the rebellion that doesn't necessarily connect to the broader empire stuff. So there's at least an attempt to make this its own fun little thing, but it is. It's it's weirdly tonally inconsistent. There's a darkness to it, um, both you know visually and thematically. That sort of 
doesn't work when it's also trying to be a bit breezy. The characters all feel just a little weird, a little off, like they're doing. It's been this concept's been kicked around a lot, but like they're doing kind of not great impressions of other actors in the movies. Mm-hmm. And even you know, even the the music was just like to me when you say it wasn't a Star Wars movie. The great offender is that the, the soundtrack, the score was just sort of like there was no sweeping memorable Han Solo theme, no Star Wars music. It was just sort of there, like temp music. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think another thing is that just as soon as the movie starts, there's nothing there to really symbolize that you're watching a Star Wars movie. And I think part of that is we don't have an opening um, crawl at all. And, you know, we just have, you know, a long time ago in a galaxy. Um, At least there was that. But without, you know, the opening music, and even Rogue One didn't have, you know, the classic Star Wars theme, but it did have sort of its own kind of take on that music that felt like it was within that universe. Like it felt Mm -hmm. like a sibling of the other movies. But without that without the traditional opening and even even the Han Solo logo like I hate the logo for this movie <laughs> so much I don't know if I, I just started the movie in a bad mood because of it but as soon as it appears on screen it just felt like like you're watching a cheesy parody of a Star Wars movie and not an actual one and I just I couldn't get over that the whole time well how do you reconcile that then uh, a little bit because there there's the idea and I, I think a lot of critics have written about it is that like Star Wars needs to be able to branch off from the characters it's created you know a lot of authors have written that Star Wars has a Skywalker problem or versions thereof where it's so connected to this one lineage this one family line it needs to be able to explore the universe a little bit and this film tries to do that but it also doesn't work and you end up saying things like it doesn't feel like a Star Wars movie which seems like a weird you know, to hear myself say that, it feels like a kind of like a weird double backhanded criticism where you're like, well, I thought the whole point was that it wasn't supposed to be a Star Wars movie. But there is there is an element of this missing where it doesn't it, it wants to depart from the main, you know, the, the main nine movies of the Star Wars series, but it doesn't really understand what it means to live in this universe and what what the what makes these planets, these alien races, these different characters that you see so unique. So like what is that you know obviously if you knew this you'd be getting calls from Kathleen Kennedy to help you out, help her out on the next one but like where what is that disconnect why is it trying why what makes it not a Star Wars movie when it's trying so hard to not be a Star Wars movie if that makes sense yeah i mean that's a good point i think that you know if they want that disconnect i think that disconnect should be tone it should, it should be tonally and i think initially it seemed like this movie was going to do that when lord and miller were on board that it was going to take more of this comedic tone and and their playful sense of humor into the Star Wars universe, and we don't get that really at all in this. And the and the moments, um, at least for me and the, and the audience that I was in, um, the moments that are supposed to be humorous just don't land, and they just mm-hmm. end up feeling really awkward. And I just think that the disconnect is sure they're trying to tell a different story, but there's not a clear aim of of how they want to keep that separate from the other movies, and also just the fact that they're telling a story that. I don't think anyone really wants to hear. I mean, I don't think anyone wants to know how Han Solo got his name, at least the way that they show us, which was probably one of the things I hated most about this movie. Oh, it's really bad. Yeah. It's so it's, bad. It's no, and I think it was Scott Wampler who who'd said something along the lines of like, if this movie before he'd seen it, if this movie is basically just going to be the first fifteen minutes of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, writ large that it was going to be a really bad experience. And that's that is kind of essentially what it is. Like it is this 15-minute idea of let's explain away every character decision that an actor made in a film. You know, let's give it backstory. Let's treat it as some sort of weird canon. And literally, like, when the last name of your character has to be given, like, a line of significance or it has to be explained. Like, can you imagine how frustrating movies would be if you had to give the reason behind everybody's last name forever? That would be awful. Gosh, it could be its own cinematic universe. Let's yeah, like it. <laughs> it is like this cinematic equivalent of just bagat, where you just trace backwards and be like, and this is where James Bond got the name Bond. The end. <laughs> oh gosh, I hope not. I mean, I guess it speaks to the fact that that's the origin of this movie is that Lawrence Kasdan pitched the idea um, to to Bob Iger that the movie was going to explore Han Solo's name. So, I mean, that's the kernel that gave birth to this whole entire project. And and I guess I could see on paper how that could maybe be interesting. And and the way that Lawrence Kasdan has described it and sort of described his pitch does sound kind of interesting. And this idea that, you know, Han Solo didn't have a didn't have a tribe, didn't have a community, and and how that sort of built him into the character we know. 
But just the execution of that scene, I mean, my eyes were in the back of my head. It's just, it's cringeworthy. Speaking of cringeworthy, let's talk a little bit about the performances. It's a beautiful segue right there. Um, <laughs> you know, I know going in, and we talked a lot about this in part one, there's, there was a lot writing from fans' perspectives on the performances that Donald Glover and Alden Ironreich were going to be able to provide. You know, the, they're not only working to find performances that make sense internally for the movie, but they're also connecting to these two iconic characters um, and, you know, engaging in their own public persona. Donald Glover is having a hell of a 2018. So all of this kind of like folds into the way that, that these characters are playing out. What did you think of the big two? Like, how did they work playing the younger versions of Billy D. Williams and Harrison Ford? Well, I'll start with the positive. I loved Donald Glover as Lando. He was probably my favorite part of the movie next to Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Um, and the two of them together, their scenes were one of my favorites. But, I mean, to me, he just, it felt like he was playing a younger Lando to me. And it felt authentic. And and, and I can't, it, it's hard for me to, to distinguish just my, my own love for Donald Glover and my excitement of seeing him in a Star Wars movie, in a sense. But, but he just has a swagger that feels so much like the Lando that we know. And just something about seeing him waltzing around in a cape and, and playing a game of Sabacc, it just made sense and it worked, whereas it didn't really work for me with Alden. And I, I do think there are some moments where he gets at something that feels like it's Harrison Ford but doesn't feel like it's a parody. It, it does nail something that feels authentic and but but that was really rare i mean most of it just sort of felt like he was playing some other dude in this star wars universe and then you're supposed to remember that he's playing han solo and it, it was just this weird disconnect and maybe that was something that was lost when ron howard came on board i mean it's just it doesn't it didn't line up for me yeah i wonder you know i i couldn't help but think a little bit about um mad max fury road in terms of taking this iconic character giving it to somebody else having them do something that's completely unlike what the original actor did but it still sort of works you know like tom hardy clearly takes a character he does his own thing nobody walked out of mad max Fury road saying like oh that's not my mel gibson because because the performance because the direction because the action set pieces like they all created something that was so internally consistent that you didn't care if the elements of craziness that mel gibson brought in his original role like none of that mattered right. anymore totally. so there was def there was a sense that that you know, you hit on this well. Like there are times where he does manage to create something kind of unique, and those to me were the moments where he was actually less trying to be Han Solo and more just being an actor playing a role. And those, you know, dashing devil may care, give the Harrison Ford half smile things. Those I think are the moments in the movie where he kind of gets in trouble because it becomes this uncanny valley of performances where you're like, all right, I see who you're trying to be, and I've lost who you mm -hmm. actually are. I wish they had put less emphasis on this. I wish they just let him be charming and say, like, play the character however you want to play the character. It'll all make sense in the end. Yeah, completely. I mean, I'd be curious to see what his performance would be like had they not brought on an acting coach to sort of help him mimic um, Harrison Ford. But maybe those are in the, uh, the Lord and Miller edits that we'll never see. Now, you mentioned, too, Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Um, Real quick shout out, everybody should watch Killing Eve. End of shout yes. out. Um, <laughs> um, you know what was it about? We've we've kind of been for for as much stuff has been good or bad about the Star Wars movies thus far. Um, we've been blessed with a ton of really awesome droids. Um, I think that that's kind of the through line in all of these. Is the every movie has had a unique droid with its own interesting personality. Clearly. Um, in the um, the last one, the Rogue One prequel, you had Alan Tudyk playing a character. Now you've got Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Like, is it good or bad that the droids are the most interesting and most relatable characters in these movies? Is that just sort of part of the thing that makes Star Wars work? It could be. I mean, yeah, when you think about Star Wars, you think about the droids. And, you know, they're, they're so iconic and they're so memorable. And they're so distinct from other robots you know we see we see in other movies you know they feel very much like they exist in this world and you couldn't really imagine them in another sort of universe um but i i think hers is so distinct um l3 just because she's so funny and and it could just be with her line delivery and the way that she actually feels like something fresh and alive in this movie there's just so much energy within her character that i didn't feel with amelia clark's character that i didn't feel with even Woody Harrelson, everyone just is kind of flat to me and sort of blends in to the landscape that they're in. But L3 sort of pops and, and she's in your face. And 
and that could just be a mixture of of the dialogue and and Phoebe Waller-Bridge's personality coming into these into the Star Wars movie. You talked about Amelia Clark. You also mentioned Paul Bettany, and of course Woody Harrelson. They didn't work for you. I mean, I, I did like um, Paul Bettany. Um, I wish that his villain was a little bit more interesting than just a dude with scars on his face. I think there could have been a little bit more done there. Um, I mean, Paul Bettany's great, and I think he he plays a good villain. But ultimately, I I can't really imagine myself remembering his character. You know a couple years down the line. I just don't think it's going to stand out in my mind as um, as much as, say, Ben Mendelsohn's Orson Krennic, who I really loved in, mm-hmm. in Rogue One. And and Woody Harrelson is all right, but it just it didn't feel like anything unique to me. Um, and Amelia Clark, I mean, I love her and I love her in Game of Thrones, but maybe it's just that her character doesn't really get, get a whole lot to do. I mean, I think she's really underserved and that she's mostly just sort of there to to propel Han's character in the direction that, that um, we know he's sort of going to go in and, and to, you know, propel this heartbreak into motion. Um, I mean, the women in this movie are really underserved in general, which is just such a bummer from L3 to even um, how little we see of, of Enfys Nest once we realize that she's actually a woman. Yeah. I was sort of shocked at the fact that Thandie Newton was in the movie for like 15 minutes tops because Completely, I just forgot to, yeah. yeah like it's so bad that you completely forgot that she was in the film like it, it yeah she was it, it feels not to put you know disney and lucasfilm on the spot again but she was so front and center in so much of the marketing and so much of the interviews and stuff that they were putting out there you know i really thought that she was going to have an iconic character that stayed for the whole movie and then she blows herself up so that woody harrelson can rob a train and i was just like guys optics come on <laughs> completely yeah i really thought she was going to be in the movie more and and the fact that she blows herself up and then is just completely forgotten about i mean it's not like her death has that much of an impact on on woody harrelson's tobias i mean she dies and then the movie just moves on and completely forgets about her i mean i want to see a movie about her character like that would maybe be more interesting to me than just sort of shoving her into someone else's story and then discarding her right away. Yeah, I did a uh, recorded the Deadpool 2 podcast not that long ago with Rob Hunter, and we were talking about um, Raina Baccarin's character in that. And, you know, like, I understand people, if you want to fight about the fact that whether or not, like, fridging or that kind of stuff is a good thematic element, whether or not it's sexist, you know, I don't agree with you if you think that it's okay, but those are conversations people are having. The one thing we should all be able to agree on is it's just, it's lazy writing to kill a character like that. It's uninteresting. And it, if that's the best thing that you can put out there, like even set aside everything else, like it's just bad and you shouldn't do it because it's bad. And that was, you know, that, that was, I think the moment where I had sort of gone from waffling a little bit on whether or not I was going to like solo to being against it. I was like, you're just, you're going to make the least interesting decision every step of the way. And so when you kill Thandie Newton's character immediately, I'm like, all right, this is going to be that kind of movie. Like whatever the baseline decision is, whatever the, the lowest hanging fruit is, that's the direction you're going to take. It was just a moment of frustration that would sort of be echoed throughout the rest of the solo viewing experience for me. Yeah. And it's especially frustrating that, you know, one of the few actual um, people of color in the mm-hmm. cast dies right away. And even, you know, it, it, it was cool to see Enfys Ness played by a woman of color, but she's really hardly in the movie. So it does sort of feel like Lucasfilm trying to get some extra bonus points by saying, look, like we are diverse and we are, you know, bringing some other people into this world, but we're not going to actually service the characters the way that they deserve to be. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the visuals too. Um, just out of curiosity, I know there's there's been a lot of conversations, at least in my timeline, about where people screened it and whether or not that had an effect on how people saw the film. I saw it basically at like a neighborhood little regal thing, and so when I checked it out, like all of the um, you know everything on the screen looked dull. It looked monochromatic. It didn't look very good to me, and I was prepared to come out roaring and saying that Solo was the least visually interesting Star Wars film I've ever seen. But I'd also talked to some folks that had seen it on, you know, well-calibrated digital projectors that said that Bradford Young's cinematography really pops and it looks like an amazing Star Wars movie and all the colors are there. So which, like, which version of this movie did you see? Did you get to see it in, in like, its colorful glory or did you see it kind of like the dull, you know, blackwashed stuff that I had? You know, I honestly forgot Bradford Young was the cinematographer on this until these conversations were happening because I saw it in in the theater where it just all kind of looked like muck, like dark. Mm, yeah. I, I didn't really get to appreciate it. I kind of walked away without any distinct impression 
of what this world looks like visually. And, and I think it starts off on a really bad foot um, because when we're in that first opening scene with the chase and, and we see, um, what's the name of Han's uh, planet? Corellia. Uh, Corellia, yes. Um, I mean, it's just, everything is so ugly looking because it's so dark. And I guess it could have been the theater that I was in where there was really, um, I, I couldn't even appreciate any of Bradford Young's work. And I love his stuff. I mean, I love Arrival. I mean, that's it's such a beautifully shot movie. And this, I mean, perhaps I need to go see it again in a theater with a better projector because I, I can't even tell you anything distinct about the visuals of the movie that made an impression on me. Do you think that um, talking again about the the handoff, or I'll say the um, you know the transition between um, the two filmmakers and moving into Ron Howard, you know, how do you think Howard did as the savior of this project? Do you think that he did enough with the world building and the stuff that he that you had mentioned before, basically reshooting a lot of the, the stuff that uh, Miller and Lord had already shot? Did he do enough to make it to make it look and feel like a blockbuster movie, or did it sort of feel slapdash? I mean, I will say I was genuinely surprised at how much it didn't feel like it was a movie split between directors. Mm-hmm. Um, it did sort of feel like a complete vision to me. And you know, I, I guess maybe I was sort of looking at it with a fine-tooth comb, trying to find those differences. I mean, tonally there are issues, but um, it did sort of feel to me like Ron Howard probably shot the majority of this, and this is what we're seeing. Um, but it doesn't have the sort of you know special you know dazzle that so many of the star wars movies have and i think you know he did an all right job but in general it just doesn't you know stick out in my mind as something that is above what it should be it doesn't feel like a ron howard star wars movie it just feels like ron howard did a a big budget movie and i guess it has to do with star wars okay oof that's that's damning with frank praise right (laughs) there no 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 that's good that's good ron howard accidentally made a star wars movie that's um that is poster worthy right there. So make sure you grab Oliver's quote for that. <laughs> uh, well, you know, kind of along those lines then too, since you know there are things about it that at least try and connect it a little bit to um, a Star Wars movie. You, I can't remember. Did you say that you had seen the Clone Wars and any of your various television rankings and whatnot? Had you gone back and watched the animated Star Wars series? No, I've never seen it. Okay, then then as an outsider to that whole thing, you know, the big reveal the thing that people were talking about after the movie came out um, was the return of Darth Maul to the Star Wars universe specifically the live action Star Wars universe because he's been a major character in the canonical Clone War television series for a while now mm-hmm. um, how did that play for you did it feel you know I I'll bias I'll, I'll put my own personal bias out there and say that you know when you do these big reveals for things for properties that people haven't really connected with, they sort of feel self-serving and disjointed, like you're interrupting a story that people are in the middle of to be like, by the way, I didn't know if you knew it, but this character's still alive and this is happening. Um, how, like, did Darth Maul, were you like, oh, great, Darth Maul, or were you like, oh, okay, great? I mean, I was very confused because <laughs> I okay. didn't know what he was doing there. And I, yeah, I'm not familiar with the Clone Wars um uh, with his appearance there, I mean, I had to read an article afterward um, that, that Matt Singer wrote for Screen Crush describing how he was in the movie because I was like, wait, this doesn't make sense. I thought he died. Um, so, yes, that was very confusing. I mean, I, I think I was like shocked because I definitely was not expecting that. And there was just a lot of confusion. I mean, I wish I was like recording my face because I was just like, what is what's going on and why is he here? And you know, I guess I there was an element of me, like the, the kid inside of me who, you know, saw the prequels when I was really young that was kind of stoked to see his lightsaber there. And, you know, we don't get to see a lightsaber in the movie at all beyond that. So I was like, oh, that's kind of cool, but I don't understand what he's doing here. And this definitely feels like fan service and a big distraction because, you know, if your audience isn't familiar with that, then they're going to be completely lost. Yeah, like you, I read it, uh, the film critics. We, I read another piece to catch me up on why Darth Maul was there and what he'd been up to in the um, the Clone Wars universe. I will say that that the part of this movie that I probably was the most interested in was maybe the last fifteen minutes between Amelia Clark and that character, in the sense that they were building momentum for a narrative that had nothing to do with rebels versus you know Imperials. They had a little bit of a world that had to do with underworld and these crime lords and these hierarchies and 
you know, this was a system that Han would probably spend the rest of his prequel years railing against. That, to me, it's, it was sort of too late for it to matter at all. But once he introduced that character and once I went back and read to understand what Darth Maul was doing in the movie, there was a moment there where I was like, oh, I can see what they're building towards. And a lot of the criticisms I saw of critics that were sort of on the fence about it and said, I don't think I liked Solo, but I'm down for another one. I was like, oh, I get what they mean because that I'm down for another one idea that has Amelia Clark and Darth Maul and Iron Reich doing their thing running around. Like, okay, I get that. I, I see that now. But... I'm the best, if the best praise you can offer of a Star Wars movie is like, I read an article about it after I watched it, and I'm like, oh, I'll watch another one. That's, again, iffy. Right, you shouldn't need an article to explain your movie or convince you to want to see another one. Yeah, exactly. Oh, all right, what am I missing? What, have we, what haven't we talked about with this movie that we need to address? Um, uh, I don't know, do you have, any, do you have any, uh, any insights into the mind of Chewbacca you want to throw out there? I mean, I, you know, I like Chewbacca at any point. You put Chewbacca in a Star Wars movie, and I'm totally happy. Um, I don't need to know how Chewbacca and Han met. I don't need to know how Chewie got his name. You know, they showed it to me, and, and like, it's, it's fine, but it's, it's not changing my life in any essential way. So I'm fine without it, but mm-hmm. it was all right. <laughs> I'm just very, like, lukewarm on all of it. It was a weird departure as, again, as somebody that knew this Star Wars now defunct canon stuff. There were moments where I was like, that's OK. No, I, all right. I see what they're going there. Because in the in the books, push up glasses on the nose. In the books, um, Chewbacca has a life debt. He say, Han Solo saves his life and he owes him a life debt, which is sort of implied, I guess, a little bit here as well. Mm. Um, so it's an interesting it's interesting to see the changes they made to plug it into the rest of the universe. It does make Chewbacca's timeline vis-a-vis the prequels and the original Star Wars movie even more confusing. Like, this dude has sort of become Hamlet's ghost of, like, the whole thing where he's always around and yet he never seems to be like, hey, I know what's going on. Your dad is messing with this person and every... That, to me, is a little funny, but I will admit, too, that as much as it's not, you know, as much as it's it's sad from a fan's perspective not to have Peter Mayhew playing the character, it is kind of neat to have a younger, more agile actor in the role who can actually get into the physicality of a Chewbacca and throw some stuff around and have some actual fight sequences and, you know, like show off what a character like that could do. So they had to recast it just because Mayhew was getting a little too old for the character. It was fun to see a new actor actually get up and do some Wookiee stuff. Yeah, it's it's awesome to actually see him saving some Wookiees. I love that scene where he where he spots them and just sort of goes off and does his own thing, and then comes back to to save Han at the last minute. I mean, I'm into some Wookiee action for sure. More Wookiee action, more Wookiee action, and more Donald Glover in the next Han Solo movie. And maybe maybe you'll make another hundred million dollars in opening weekend. I don't know. Or just don't make another Han Solo movie and make a Lando movie. Oh yeah, do that definitely. I'm into that. <laughs> I guess that's the last question I want to ask then. You know, everybody's been talking about the opening weekend that I had, that it was super subpar. And by super subpar, I mean that it made like $180 million worldwide. You know, how do you feel about that? And how does that bode for you for the future of this particular corner of the Star Wars franchise? I mean, it doesn't look great, that's for sure. (laughs) Um, And I think, you know, there's been so many conversations lately about why the movie hasn't performed well. And there's, you know, there's so many possibilities up in the air. Is it, you know, the summer release date when we're so used to seeing a Star Wars movie in December? Is it Star Wars fatigue? You know, is it um, prequel fatigue? Like, I think there's there's so many possibilities and there's no right answer. But I think this, you know, I, what I said in the, in the initial part of this um, podcast was that I wanted this movie to convince me to care about the prequels. And it didn't do that. At this point, you know, I'm not interested in seeing Star Wars prequels unless they they tell more interesting stories about characters um, that aren't Han Solo, that aren't so iconic, you know? Um, and if they were to mm-hmm. bring on directors that were more exciting, like I, I want to see them actually commit to the directors that they bring on and not fire someone, you know, halfway through um, and bringing on more diverse directors who have some sort of fresher, unique voice um, to, to make this to make these spinoffs feel more special if they want to make them distinct from the rest of the movies for sure, or else it just feels sort of unnecessary to me. So I guess this makes me a little bit worried. Um, but I, I feel like the fact that it didn't perform well 
means that you know maybe people really don't want to see this type of Star Wars movie. Now, at the risk of turning your mentions into a garbage fire, oh gosh, um, you can you can answer this as as um, easily and non-combatively if you want as you want. But how much of this Star Wars fatigue or sort of the uneasiness people feel about the Star Wars prequels is a result of the weird infighting and divisiveness we've seen from the reaction to The Force Awakens. The reaction to The Force Awakens or Last Jedi? Uh, I'm sorry, The Last Jedi, yeah. Okay. I mean, yeah, I've seen that argument as well. And I mean, I think it's just kind of ridiculous because, I mean, this is so distinct from The Last Jedi. And if people were angry about that, I don't see why that camp of people wouldn't see this movie. Um, I mean, it's not like this isn't a Ryan Johnson movie. This isn't, you know, connected to the Skywalker saga. So I don't that argument doesn't connect for me. And and people are saying that, you know, the the social justice warriorization of Star Wars is is, you know, infiltrating this and, and is the reason this movie didn't perform well. But like this movie is about a white dude. So that that argument, you know, doesn't hold up for me. Um, but I don't know. We'll we'll see if people slide into my mentions and and yell at me about it. Well, I, I think you've probably, everybody who is going to yell at you about Star Wars has already done so. I'm hoping, <laughs> I'm hoping you're pretty safe there. All right, before we give the movie our final score, Oliver, uh, what is a uh, another film, you know, if you had to say, go watch this movie after you've watched Solo Star Wars movie, like what's one movie you'd recommend people go out and seek after this one? Can I cheat and say a TV show? Yes, Unless it's the one, unless it's the one I was going to pick, and then you're putting me in a hard spot. Oh, but no. Please continue. Please continue. No, okay, maybe it is, but um, I'm I, just because I love Phoebe Waller-Bridge so much, I'm going to say Fleabag. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, I've seen the pilot, so tell our audience a little bit about what makes that show special. Um, I mean, Phoebe Waller-Bridge has this really great sense of humor. Um, in that show, she she's always breaking the fourth wall and turning to the camera to sort of have a little like wink at the camera and 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 have some sort of snarky comment. And there's just something so refreshing about that. And it, and it sort of feels like she brings that into her um, L3 in this movie, where you almost feel like she's about to turn to the camera and wink at you at any moment. And I think if you if you like her in this movie and you like the charm that she brings to her droid, then that show will um, be a nice surprise. Excellent. You know what? I'm very glad you said that because I was going to choose a TV show too. And I was like, I can't be the one to break the rules on my podcast. <laughs> but you've paved the way. So thank you. Um, for my show, I'm going to choose because I was listening to an episode of Keep It that had Brian Fuller on as a guest at the very end, and they were actually talking about Star Wars. I'm going to pick Hannibal because I think, first of all, everybody loves Hannibal, so I'm not a super special person because I like Hannibal. Everyone loves Hannibal, but Hannibal is, notwithstanding everyone's love for it, a great example of what happens when you take an existing property, you try and tell an origin story, but you figure out a way to do it that has its own sense of rhythm, has its own relationships with the characters. You take those core ideas of what makes people special and you build up your own unique thing around them. And then you have something that is both paying homage to what came before. You know, obviously Hannibal exists in the same conversation with Silence of the Lambs, but it's very much so a show that belongs to the performers, that belongs to Brian Fuller as a showrunner. And you would you would never feel there's a, anybody who watches Hannibal and complains that it's not enough like Silence of the Lambs is so far afield from what I would understand um, taste to be that I'm sorry I couldn't follow you there. But if you everybody loves it, you've already seen it, but if you need a refresher, Hannibal is a great way to offer earlier versions of a character without falling down the well into parody or imitation. That's that's a really good answer. I love Hannibal. And yeah, maybe Lucasfilm needs to to watch that and realize how to make a prequel and focus on a totally distinct take on a, on a character. That would be, or just hire Brian Fuller. I mean, I'd watch a Brian Fuller. Hire Wars Brian movie. Fuller and bring back Mads Mikkelsen. You had him, you lost him. What's yes. going on there? Agreed. All right, Oliver. Then for the, uh, for the final tally on a scale of one to five, uh, where are you going to give Solo a Star Wars story? I'm going to give it a two. Yeah. Yeah. That feels about right. I uh, I was I've been waffling a little bit on a two two and a half. I'm gonna go with two and a half just so we don't give the same score. But it's you know I there are people in my timeline that really like it. There are people whose opinions I really trust and who make valid arguments for why it's a film, a Star Wars movie, maybe even their favorite Star Wars movie since the original trilogy. Um, it's just it, it, none of it worked for me. Barely anything worked in that movie for me. And the idea of having to do that a second time around, I, I hope that. Disney is paying attention and makes some necessary changes because 
we cannot take nine more of those for all the various characters in Star Wars universe. Oh my gosh, please don't do it, Lucasfilm. Kathy Kennedy, if you're listening, don't do it. <laughs> Your friend Oliver Whitney is telling you right now, don't do this. You've talked before. You probably will remember how the conversation went. Yes. And whatever you do, don't fire James Mangold. Just let him direct his movie. <laughs> oh yeah. Great. Okay. Like quick follow-up question on that. Do you think, do you think Mangold actually gets to finish the project? I mean, who knows? <laughs> I feel like at this point you can only be so excited when a new Star Wars director is announced because, you know, in nine months he's probably going to be fired. Um, but I hope so. I mean, I, I really liked Logan and it would be awesome to see him actually uh, stick around in the Star Wars universe. You know, for all of my news writers and film critics and television critics out there, I hope with all of my heart that James Mangold gets fired and they bring in Colin Trevorrow for reshoots because that will <laughs> that will keep you in business for a solid month. That'll be enough traffic to keep the lights on for every major entertainment site out there. So I'm going to cross my fingers for that one. I, I've already written the article. <laughs> Perfect. All right, Oliver, if people want to talk Star Wars with you or talk about your excellent television post that you just wrote, Best Shows of 2018, or you know anything else um, related to entertainment, film, and television, what's a great way to reach out to you on social media? You can find me on Twitter, and my name is at Cinemabyte, B-I-T-E. Excellent. As for myself, you can follow me on Twitter at Labsplice. That's L-A-B-S-P-L-I-C-E. Follow the podcast at One Perfect Pod. And, you know, if you like what we're doing here, visit filmschoolrejects.com. Follow us on, you know, Stitcher or iTunes or your podcast show of choice. And yeah, just give us some feedback. We'd love to hear what people are saying about the show. Oliver, you are going to be back here before long because we're going to be talking about Mission Impossible in the very near future. I'm so excited for that one. So I cannot wait. It'll only be a couple of weeks. I'm going to see you again in short order. All right. Talk to you then. 